Weekends are a good time to escape to the woods. Unless the weekend begins with Friday the 13th. Because 13 is an unlucky number. But out here, so are 1 through 12. Because these are Jason's woods. And nobody leaves them alive. Friday the 13th, part 3. It's always Friday the 13th for this trio of hombres. <laughs> and this week we are looking at part 3 in 3D. I got a chance to watch the movie in 3D. Uh, I don't know if you guys did, but I'm John Evans and I'm joined by Mike Kuchek and Vikram Wheat. Hello guys, how are you this week? Awesome. Always awesome. Excellent. Yeah. Glad to hear it. So did you, uh, in what format did you guys watch the movie? I did, I did not watch it in, in 3D, unfortunately. I was I was saddled with the plain old archaic 2D television. <laughs> and you yeah, might... I just, I, I, I just watched it on Netflix. Right on. Yeah. Well, I got to see it on, in 3D, which I, I think definitely uh, contributes to the enjoyment of the film. So, and, and in this case, I think I was glad for any additional enjoyment that, that could be had. But uh, why don't we just go around the horn and, uh, you know, throw out those initial overall thoughts, starting with you, Mike. I will say this, and, you know, I, I hate to... On some level, I kind of hate to be this guy, but let me just say this straight off the top. Uh, in approaching the first and second movies, I was surprised by how much more I enjoyed them than even memory served. Three, uh, for me, was the gateway drug to this franchise because there was that summer where it was playing on Showtime like every day, and it was like the first one that I really just kind of absorbed. And... um for that reason, kind of settled in the base of my brain as, as one of my favorites. And uh, going back, having just watched the first two, I would say that this is significantly weaker than parts one and two. Of the maybe the entire franchise, this is kind of the one that I have the, the least distinct memories of. Hmm. So I don't have that, that nostalgia for it. Mike, I think, uh, and obviously we'll get to it, but I think part four is the one that felt like my, uh, my, my gateway drug, my, my marijuana, if you will, into the franchise. Right. Into the crack cocaine and heroin of the other films. <laughs> yeah, that, yes, that was the, you know, the, the, the rest of the franchise. So, um, uh, so watching it again, it was, I mean, I felt like I was almost coming to it with, with fresh eyes. I mean, even again, having watched the, you know, the entire franchise within the last few years and, and always sort of picking them up on television here and there. Right. Um, it is, I mean, I guess I, on the one hand, I see what you mean. Like it is, it is a little bit weaker. Uh, I wonder the degree to which the the 3D technology of the time maybe made the filmmaking a little simpler. There weren't a lot of shots that I sort of came away with. I know we talked a little bit about some of the takes in the second one. Uh, right. you know, there are these individual shots that are just sort of you know amazing, um, or at least very very well done. And so I didn't come away with a, a you know the impressed with the the technical prowess now probably the 3d had something to do with that too oh um, but i did like watching the tropes of the franchise come into place um you know i mean seeing jason in the hockey mask for the first time is i don't know that's 
that's cool. Like that's scary. They hit on something there. And I'm, I'm glad that, you know, they obviously recognize that um, and stuck with that image. So um, I think there's, I actually do think there's a lot of, there's a lot of good stuff here. There's a lot of interesting stuff. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's not, it, it, it's not one of the films that really stands out in the, in the franchise. The distinct memory I have of this film going into it was of the, um, the, the yo-yo uh, going down <laughs> like that was the one thing I was like you know I do remember that in many ways this is the film that truly kind of locks in what this franchise means to I I, I think the, the general public if that makes <laughs> sense where we, we get all of the main tropes that are uh, most easily identifiable with the franchise but at the same time also establishes the idea that you know that they're shitty low budget movies you know, whereas the first and second one are kind of better acted and the characters are more interesting and they're better directed uh, than you kind of give this franchise credit for. This is kind of one where it's like, oh, yeah, he's a he's a big oaf and he's got a mask and the characters are dumb teenagers and la la la. So, well, it's, it's interesting to note, though, that it is the same director as part two. Um, which is why I wonder what, again, what degree the the uh, the, the 3D technology hindered them uh, in oh, terms yeah. of the production. Oh, I, I'm sure. I, I mean, that's the thing is, you know, I was due to the fact that it's 3D, I was completely willing to forgive, uh, you know, the lack of interest in camera movements because mm-hmm. you know it's it's a bigger, heavier camera, it's a clunkier technology. La la la. So, but I, I mean, that doesn't forgive the the writing and the acting. <laughs> true, true. Well, I'm chomping at the bit to jump in here because jump uh, in. I've I've done a lot of research into this film uh, okay. because it wasn't as interesting to me as a document to parse and study the way we did with the first two. So instead, I devoted a little bit more time into. Uh, production history and things like that, which I actually did find really interesting. And okay. you guys are surmising that the 3D affected the production of the film in some negative ways. And I can confirm that uh, for you because it took six weeks to shoot this movie as opposed to the, you know, three or four that the er- earlier films did. And the 3D was extremely cutting edge, but at that time, uh, they didn't have like uh, the perfect equipment or even the film stock for this. They were basically flying by the seat of their pants. And so they did many, many takes of everything. And a lot of the actors said that they were clearly not the directing uh, director and producers were not interested in the actors during those takes. They're just trying to get the exposure right and, right. you know, get the gag. So there was very little attention paid to directing the actors. And they were doing the same thing over and over to the point of ad nauseum, you know? Right. And I do think that you see that in the performances. But um, interestingly, at the genesis of this film is also some things that I think had an impact on the result and, okay. you know, lack of quality. And... The second film was not as successful as the first film, but really? it did well enough. Yeah, I mean, the first film was a, a huge hit, and the second one was a modest hit. But Paramount was, they took an interest in the franchise. 
actually, believe it or not, even the second film was a negative pickup. Um, huh. It was not produced under the supervision of Paramount. This is the first one in the series that studio head Frank Mancuso uh, actually was directly involved in, and it's mm. it's essentially a studio film, and right. it's the highest budgeted film of this series up to this point. It was about uh, two or three million, depending on what you're looking at, what the source uh-huh. is. But for the for the series and for 1982, that was a high budget, and so I think that you get kind of a a sense of the glossy but condescending approach to the material that a studio would have of, of a film and a series that they're kind of embarrassed to be releasing at all. Exactly. You know? I, I mm-hmm. will say I've been thinking for several days of what was really kind of nagging at the back of my head as to why I, I, you know, had a kind of a negative reaction to this movie. And it kind of sums up with the, the, you know, the first two movies, it feels like they're drawing on Halloween, Campfire Tales, Psycho, you know. And uh, this is the first one where it felt like the choice was, oh, these are movies for 15-year-old boys and they're, who like Fangoria and horror movies and makeup effects and la la la. And so we're going to give them that movie. And yeah, condescending is exactly the word that, that I would put my finger on, you know, where we have a scene with the girl reading Fangoria and the character of Shelley, who, I, you know, I've got an entire can of worms on that <laughs> fucking idiot. But, uh, <laughs> like, but you know, it, it's, it's just, you know, this is the movie where they go, okay, we're, we're not even going to try to entertain adults. We're going to have a movie for thir- boys 13 to 15 and it's going to be shallow and kind of dumb and the entire thing is going to feel like an elongated uh clip out of creep show if that makes sense yes yes but at the same time does all the classic shit the hockey mask the you know goonish jason all this other stuff so yeah well much as we've done with the first two films i mean there are little categories or topics that we need to hit, you know, and Jason is always a good place to, to start zeroing in. So let's let's talk about this version of Jason. Um, Vic, what, uh, what is your take on Richard Brooker as the actor here and uh, how Jason has evolved from when we saw him the last time? Well, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head with the, I mean, it is the evolution into the, the hulking kind of robotic killing machine. Um, I mean, there's unlike the, you know, with the exception of the, the, the last moments, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, no, we're very, not going to talk about that at all. What's that? <laughs> no, we're, we're not going to talk about the ending. We're only going to talk about the first half of the movie. In the fun. <laughs> it's it's, it's going to be like the Hobbit part one and two. <laughs> there's, there's very little discussion of Jason or his mother or his motivations or, you know, he doesn't, I think in the, in the second movie, I mean, obviously because it's, it's his sort of first appearance, there's a lot of evolution into his character and, and what he's doing. You know, there's, there's no, comparable moment here to that that uh you know the scene in the bar where um uh jenny explains the you know this pathetic retard who's been living alone in the woods who's just been <laughs> death. um if anything he becomes less of a character you know what i mean there's there's no he, he doesn't grow much 
But at the same time, Except I mean, physically. Again, as in, <laughs> yes. As in, yes, exactly. He's a little, he's, he's gotten a little bigger, but he's probably been eating dogs. So, um, <laughs> but at the same time, like he's become, I think visually he becomes a little scarier. Yeah. Um, I mean, I go back to that, that, that first time we really see him in the hockey mask. Um, you know, when he's, when, uh, uh he's on the pier, um, you know, with the, the spear gun. I mean, it's a, it's yeah, just yeah. as a, most of the, I feel like a, a lot of the film is dedicated to things jumping out at you. And that's one of those moments that's deeply unsettling because he's just standing there. I guess that's, those, those were kind of my biggest takeaways. Um, I did notice too, in the, at the, in the, the closing year in the sort of the final act, um, when Chris stabs him with a, uh, uh, in the leg with a knife, he groans and like, he kind of howls yeah. a little bit as he falls down. And I was like, Oh, he is still human. Um, right. Yeah. But I, I, those beats are really rare. I mean, uh, like you just said in, in the second one, I, I, mean, a lot of, I, in the first movie, a lot of attention is given to the psychology of the killer. In the second one, a lot of, of, of calories are expended and the backstory of Jason and the psychology of um, XYZ. In this one, he's just a big goon who hides in a barn and kills you if you walk into the barn. Until finally, like, he gets sick of hiding in the barn, and then he comes out of the barn and kills you if you're outside the barn, too. And that's the extent of what's going on with this guy. That's it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we could try to parse his actions in this film to you know, try to give the character a little more depth or, you know, intelligence or whatever. Like, for instance, does he cut the power? Um, You know, there's always the placement of the bodies after he kills them that you could, you know, attempt to interpret. But it's almost a worthless enterprise because he is an extremely shallow character in this film, with the exception of one thing, which is um, the one concession to the sort of dreamlike mythology and backstory informing the film uh, that they do in the third one is the history that he has with the lead character with Chris. Do you want to start talking about that? Because I have some thoughts on that in the first two movies, as we've kind of touched on, I mean, there, there is like kind of a connection with a, a dream reality. Like in the first one, we have a character was a dream of raining blood, and that's kind of a portent. And the second one, uh, and, and then it ends with her having a dream of, J- of Jason grabbing her. And the second one, it ends with another dream, la la la. Uh, but in this one, instead of a backstory or a psychology, what we have is uh, this story that the protagonist tells in a really shitty manner, by the way. By, the, yes. the acting is terrible in that scene. And... Um, and uh, but she gets into an argument with her parents. She runs out into the woods. Jason surprises her, chases her down, and then she kind of cuts to black and wakes up in her bed. And her parents never talk about it ever again, which leads me to believe that actually didn't happen, that she just fell asleep and had a dream about Jason, which I believe to be precognitive, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I don't think that he actually appeared to her in reality I, 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 or, or else uh, it was fleeting or she got away. I'm not absolutely sure, but I'd like to give it the benefit of the doubt in terms of, you know, it's dreamlike qualities. Cause I mean, otherwise we're saying that Jason just kind of order and let her go. Like he's on a catch and release program. It was outside the hunting season 
or what were we going to say? He didn't have his license. Again, we're in a place in which the scene on the surface level can be easily attributed to just terrible writing. But there are enough pieces there that we can invest something. We can invest the beat with something that might be a little more interesting. But it's hard to say. <laughs> Vic, what I, do you think? Honest, honest to goodness, guys, I walked away from that scene and I, I actually jotted this note down that the secret to getting away from Jason is blacking out. <laughs> like, you know, in the second one, at the end, he he leaps through the window and grabs her and, you right. know, wakes up and she's okay. Right. Um, you know, the girl, the girl who, who gets taken out of the lake blacks out. She wakes up and, and everything's okay. Like that's, it just occurred to me that if I was I, being attacked by Jason, I'm, I might just pretend to faint. This, that is brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant because I, I, we have finally gotten to the heart of it that Jason is like a rabid bear. That if you just flop to the ground and play possum, <laughs> he'll sniff around you and grunt a little bit and then he will leave. And that explains why the second one had all the bear imagery and references. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Although I, I wonder if she was clean when she was out in the woods. <laughs> Yes, if she's not um, practicing proper feminine hygiene, she doesn't survive. <laughs> uh, uh, what was the character's name, Paul, in the second one? Yeah. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I, you know, fortunately she didn't take Paul's advice. She, she, lured, she uh, attracted the attention of Jason. But then she wisely uh, played possum. And that well, this, it. Is, this has always been one of the more uh, thought-provoking aspects of this movie for me because – I clearly remember thinking when I saw this movie uh, the last time that he raped her. And I have somewhat confirmed that in my research. It was said in the script that he raped her. What? Yes. Yes. Really? Yes. That, that just doesn't connect with the character at all. And I, I think that that's why I, – I, I mean, if we're to say that the actual facts as described – actually truly happen within the context of the movie that she blacks out Jason rapes her and then presumably her parents find her put her to bed and then just pretend like it never happened or else they don't know what happened or something like that um well you could see I mean not to get too deeply into the psychology of her parents but (laughs) you, you, you could see how they would be like just trying to pretend that it never happened, like not knowing what happened and not wanting to know. I mean, that's one of the reactions that you could see people having to something like that is just to, you know, um, not want to deal with it. But um, I agree with you that it, it, it makes absolutely no sense with the character as he's been constituted. Uh, But, you know, I will say that, I mean, just a couple of minutes ago, we were talking about how in this movie, like almost zero thought is given to the psychology of the character. So, I mean, it does stand a reason that within this movie we might have, you know, choices made that whether they make sense or not, it's just like, eh, maybe erase her. And no one's like, well, Jason wouldn't do that. Or it's like, oh, what do you know? He's just a stunt guy. He's a big stunt guy in the mask. Who cares? This, this might be wildly inappropriate, but the thought that I had when you said that was, well, you know, he's been killing all these horny teenagers who were having sex while he was drowning. Like, maybe at some point he's like, you know, maybe I should see what this is all about before right. I go on yeah. killing people. Yeah? Um, not, I mean, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not offering that as a legitimate explanation. That uh, just struck me as... as... Sure. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, it does kind of beg the question that if he did have some kind of libido, he has had ample opportunities to get some in the course of uh, these movies, and he refrains every time. So why that particular instance he would, you know, have a wild hair to get some strange, uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, that's, that's, that's very strange. And I, John, I did not come away with that idea at all. Although now that you say it, I think about the shots and the way that it was filmed. It actually is, I suppose, very suggestive of that. Um, and at least it explains why he would never live. Um, yeah. You know, because he gets what he wants. Um, you know, she is helpless. She doesn't resist, whatever. She passes out. Like, I could see how that would be a scenario where he wouldn't kill her. Um, but, but yeah, as you mentioned, Vic, there's a long track record already and we've only had three movies of Jason, like weirdly not killing people. And it even extends to Paul, uh, right. In the last movie where, uh, remember we were talking about it in part two that Jason wins the fight, but doesn't kill Paul. And then Paul comes exactly. back later. Well, uh, I, 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 Paul survives because Jason knocks him out again, like, like Vic adroitly pointed out. Once you're unconscious, you are immune to Jason Voorhees. Well, he does. Yeah. The, he does the the same thing to Ali in this movie. Who gets, yes. the, who gets right. the when he comes back? But I That's was, right. This was my my when I wrote that down, even as a joke. The one thought that I had about it was: Does Jason enjoy the fear when he kills people? Uh-huh. Like, is it is it less appealing to him to kill someone who's unconscious because? They don't scream, or they don't struggle, or they don't know they're that you know they're being killed. Again, right? right that's that's breathing. That's breathing a bit a, a bit into it, maybe that isn't there. But that was if you were looking for an explanation, that was what came to my mind. Is if you went unconscious, he was like, well, you know, now they're just a rock. It makes well, sense. It, it, yeah, it, it does connect because I mean, this is a character who has had lots of opportunities to kill people in their sleep. Mm-hmm. And he's totally cool with you killing you when you're distracted or relaxed, like, for instance, in a post-coital state. Mm-hmm. But he wants you to be awake and alive and knowing what's happening on some level. Yeah. And then there's also sort of a weird parallel, which is unintentional, I'm sure, to just how uh, Betsy Palmer, Pamela Voorhees, and Jason are treated by the characters in the sense that like once someone goes down it's like okay that's it you know i'm i'm, I'm moving on like because the, the the good guys often you know knock down pamela or jason especially in the first two movies and then they're right. like oh thank god that's over you know we're yeah. we're, we're good <laughs> to, to, to an almost hilarious degree yeah I, I uh you know one of the better aspects of this one is uh this is the first of these movies in which it actually makes cognitive sense to me when uh, Jason is quote unquote down that I, I would buy that she would think that he's down, you know, yes. uh, uh, that he's hung, there's a machete in his head, stuff like that. You know, it's not yeah. that he just fell off a chair and I think he has zero hit points. <laughs> right. <now. You> know? <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, yeah. th- that is something that this movie does well. So let's um, roll through the, the film now, uh, as we always do, in more or less chronological order. Just kind of you know work our way through it and talk about uh, what there is to talk about. Starting with 
the open. Now with this, we have um, the unmotivated previously on Friday the 13th. It, you know, it's not a character's memory. It's just basically the, the highlight reel. And then we get to what I think is a extremely well shot. I like the moving camera as we move into the convenience store and the laundry flapping in the wind mm-hmm. and the way that this night uh, is lit uh, is like a perfect twilight. It doesn't look fake. It looks really cool. Yeah. Um, I what agree. do you guys think? I, I lamented in this scene uh, the the loss of laundry drying on a line in horror films. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like we never, because it's one of the great shots in Halloween is Jason standing behind the laundry and then sort of disappearing. And and I, I'm sure there are, there are many more instances of it that I'm that I'm forgetting in other great horror films. Um, but you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna use that imagery now, it's got to be period piece. Like uh, The Conjuring actually has a great a great uh, uh, bit with the the laundry hanging on the line. And that was I sort of thought, man, like you just can't you can't do that anymore because nobody does that. Right. Um, I also found it interesting in that. Well, two things. Number one, I found it interesting that the rabbit appears to sense Jason as the guy's carrying the rabbit back <laughs> in to put him back in the cage. Yeah. And he's like, whoa, whoa there, buddy. What's, you know, what's, what's wrong? What's, what spooked you? Um, but uh, this also felt like the first time, and there's more of this. I'm sure we'll get into this with, with Shelly and, and some of the other characters. It's the first time I felt like they were setting up characters that you didn't like to watch them die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That this, you know, I mean, and this, again, this becomes one of the, the sort of knocks on the franchise. But this is the moment when we start rooting for Jason. You know, this yeah. shrewish wife and this, you know, this little guy. You know, He's despicable. He's eating the food and putting yeah. it back on the shelf and then going to sell it to someone. He's exactly. disgusting. And you're like, and you're just like, man, I can't wait till Jason, you know, shoves a knitting needle through the back of this lady's head <laughs> right 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 i i, I mean that's kind of thing is i you know john you're absolutely right it's it's very well shot and well lit it looks really good but this opening sequence immediately announces that this is going to be a different and in many ways less interesting and immature yes. movie than than the previous two in the first movie the first time someone is killed it's pamela getting revenge for the death of her son in the second movie, the first time someone is killed, it's Jason getting revenge for uh, against the protagonist of the first movie for, for escaping the death of his mother. I mean, he does bring her ahead along with him so she can witness, you know, that character's death. And in the third movie, the only reason that these two characters die is because, hey, that's what the kids want to see. You know, mm-hmm. it's completely unmotivated outside of just mayhem. In general, this just is a more hollow and empty film uh, for the reasons that we discussed. But um, this screenwriting duo that wrote this film originally, it was a husband and wife team. Uh, the, the writer of the second film, unfortunately, had already died by this point. Oh, what? Uh, yeah, yeah just, just a year later. Um, I don't know how old he was. I believe it was now. But, um, yeah, I believe his natural causes. Yeah, uh, the other thing, too, uh, in comparison to the second one, is in two, there's a, a very clear reason that Jason ventures out of the woods and uh, into the city is he's on a, this mission. And in this one, uh, you know, 
So it feels like this is like a little country store, perhaps on the edge of Burkittsville. Yes. Is that the name of the town, Vic? Um, on the road into Burkittsville, perhaps. It's still country. Uh, but Jason kind of just wanders out of the woods because he just kind of feels like killing a couple of people tonight, I guess. Well, the, the yeah. store, the sign on the front of the store does say Crystal Lake, whatever, you know. Right. So it's it's right there. Um, interestingly, I want to just throw out that, like, this movie is clearly shot in California and not New Jersey. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it does not look like the same place at all. And the lake looks more like a river to me than a lake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's there's zero motivation to, to uh, the character. Uh, it's just uh, he just gets, gets uh, hard on to go kill some people for a while, I guess. Well, I've read a couple of synopses of the film that suggest he he went there in order to change his clothes, which I find kind of funny. You um, know, that is that does make sense. So because if there's one thing that's been kind of nagging me about all through, about watching all three of those movies, I, I keep wondering like where he gets shoes that fit, especially right. the second one where we keep seeing his shoes walking around. <laughs> yeah, so it makes sense. Yes, yes, he was shoe shopping. That's what happened there, um, and these people got in the way. So yeah, then we have the uh, Cheech and Chong scene after this, oh. where. Um, Yes, the the delightful stoner couple are introduced. And, 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 and those two characters are fucking hilarious because the one guy is like a dude dressing up as Tommy Chong for Halloween. Yeah. And he's got this quote-unquote stoner mama with him who looks like someone's soccer mom. You know, yeah. Like, yeah. Never once, I, I never once does she effectively sell the idea that she's like a stoner chick. All of the guys in this film are dating way above their pay grade. Like (laughs) (laughs) the couples are completely mismatched in this film. The women are just uniformly way more attractive. Uh, Even the hag in the beginning, that Edna chick um, that we just talked about, she was clearly like 23 years old or something, just like playing older Um, and probably a decent looking woman in real life. Uh, yeah, so this uh, introduction of the characters is, is pretty painful, but it did remind me that uh, this film plays so much better in front of an audience in 3D because it, it is truly so bad it's good at moments like this. And you're, you're laughing at the film, not with it, but you're still having a really good time. And uh, I saw this film in a theater in a revival setting in like the mid to late 90s in Olympia, okay. Washington at a film festival with a packed house. And we just had a great time. The whole audience was just eating it up, you know? And I just wow. think that that's part of the, um, the charm of the film combined with the 3D effects uh, are all about just being cheesy. And the synth score that we get uh, with this film is a great, you know, it exemplifies that because it's, really awful but i kind of love it you know so there are things yeah. that i'm affectionate about with the film and that's definitely uh one aspect of it in that like it it truly is um <clears throat> horrible in a um amusing way yeah uh ver- ver- one very quick sidebar thought is i uh, in terms of the title sequence in the first one, the title swoops at us and shatters a window. In the second one, the title swoops at us and explodes. And ironically enough, in this one, due to the fact that it's 3D, they don't feel the need to uh, do either of that. The title just 
kind of approaches us and that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's a show of the lackadaisical attitude that they have well, yeah, with this movie. I, 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 maybe the, the, their thought process was, you know, the fact that it swoops into your lap was yeah. enough that we didn't have to shatter a window or blow it up. Of course, yeah. I mean, that's true. Um, weirdly enough, they all had sort of a 3D effect, the logo, yeah. even in the first two films. Like, they were yes. sort of quasi-3D. Okay, right. so uh, we meet the characters, we meet the lead, who is definitely not Ginny. And the one thing I'll say is that um, it's kind of nice that Ginny survives this whole thing, you know? that Yeah. Uh, she, she refused to come back, apparently, by the way. She, they did want her initially for the film. Then we get to the location. Uh, it's a somewhat creepy house. I like the windows, especially when they're shot from the inside. They're they're kind of spooky and stained, and there's something kind of ominous about the windows. But this house isn't particularly memorable. The barn where everything happens and the biker chick is so fascinated with all the implements and everything. Yeah. Uh, and Jason spends <laughs> a good deal of time there as well. Um, the barn is, I, I guess, the the character in the film uh, that the lake was previously and the campground was. We got a barn in this one. <laughs> we got a barn in this one. Um, you know, Chris keeps alluding to this kind of, uh, this this mysterious incident in her past that she's been trying to get over. Um, right. And my first thought for a, for a, a good bit of it was, was she one of the people that was out drinking at the bar? No. And you know what I mean? Like, cause that, yeah. that would have been interesting. Um, and, but then I thought, you know, I would, I feel like I would have remembered that. And, uh, and of course that turned out not to be the case, but. Um, that would have been more interesting. I think. Yeah. yeah. I would have liked to have seen them tie her in, in a, in a more organic way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, apparently what happened was, uh, she's having a fight with the same guy. And apparently this is why she's sort of distanced him, herself from him for the last year or two years. Uh, right. and, and she never explained why. Um, so they're rekindling it uh, now. They're, you know, she's, she's progressed enough. She's healed from being raped by Jason to the point of entertaining a romantic relationship again. Now, this guy is so lame. I mean, he, he yeah. is definitely a far cry from the male leads in the, uh, or certainly the, uh, Paul in the, in the yeah, second one. Paul had a lot of personality and, and, yeah. and this dude is like a lump of wood, man. And like, like and you, you don't not like him. I mean, he seems like an okay dude. But I, 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 again, like in other aspects of this film, I, I, you know, his character begins and ends with big country boy and that's it. It's like they, 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 they end with the log line on these characters and are given absolutely nothing else to work with. Although I will say that, uh, it is a true expression that Jason has grown up, quote unquote, in this movie due to the fact that in part two, Jason gets into a scuffle with Paul and knocks him out, but doesn't kill him. And uh, in this one, he actually grabs the the big country guy who we've seen as like a giant buff dude, like doing hay bales and shit, and uh, is so strong that he's able to like keep his his hand clapped over his face and keep him immobile while the protagonist looks for him. If you guys yes. remember that scene, and then crushes skull between his hands. In such a way that his eye, you know, the dude's eye comes flying out at us. So it's, you know, Jason has gone from being 
a quote-unquote frightened retard, a teenager in the woods, to being, you know, a true monster. He's basically Frankenstein now. Obviously, we'll get into this in larger part when we talk about uh, Ali, Loco, and Fox. Yes, um, let's definitely talk about but with but with Vera too, I mean, I remember even when they when they went to pick her up, and you know, her mother comes out and is like, "She's not going." Um, is, are these <laughs> are these the first minorities we get in the film? I mean, in, in any of these films, I think there was there was a one... there was a black guy in the second one, but he exactly. he goes to the bar, so he yeah, survives. He's one, he's one of the survivors. I don't think he has any dialogue. No, like this is the first time that we get uh, any you know minority characters, um, and of course then. Yeah, so we can. I think we should. We can skip ahead to, uh, uh, you know, our our scene with our punks at the, uh, yes. at the gas station or whatever. Well, I mean, before we skip though, I, I mean, there's there's one key beat that we have in which they go and they pick up Vera, and it's like this announcement that now we're going to have non-white characters in in this franchise because uh, she gets in this this Spanish language bickering with her mother, and she comes out and, and uh, she's so you know the, the movie sells us that she's this very a uh, fiery Latina chick, uh, but she is like the most white character. Yeah, on the yeah. face of the Vera, and um, we get the first true introduction of Shelley. Yes, in which uh, they go and they pick her up, and uh, Shelley comes out, and he's dressed in a mask, and he's got a knife, and he shows up, and uh, they go, Shelley, why are you always playing these kooky pranks? And he's like, with a face like this, and you were immediately making the statement that the movie is telling the audience, this is who we think you are. We think that you guys are just a bunch of fango-reading nerds. Mm-hmm. And this is your character in this story. And man, I cannot tell you with the white-hot contempt, I hate this character. <laughs> but- See, Mike, it's funny you say that because that was what, I, I didn't think of it that way. What I what I thought of, and, and even in in larger terms, in terms of the characters is, once again, they're they're giving us characters that we want to hate. Yeah, this exactly. Is, this is the movie where we're not paying attention to the characters. We're going to plug them into these these really easily defined archetypes. Uh, and Shelley's the first one that you're like, God, I can't wait to see this guy get killed. <laughs> yeah, because because I you know they they have a, a kind of jokey prankstery guy in the first movie. And I was trying to sell myself on the idea that they, well, you know, that's just who this character is in this movie. But he's so, so around the curve. He's so obnoxious and so pathetic. And he does nothing but snivel in this entire movie that you know that eventually he's going to get murdered in such a way that people are going to be like, oh, Shelly, cut it out. And he's actually going to be killed. And that's exactly what happens. Yeah, the boy who cried wolf dynamic. Yeah. But he does give Jason his hockey so for that one and only reason the the character has a value and a spear gun yes yes uh unfortunately jason does not don the wetsuit because that that would have been cool he he started with the wetsuit couldn't get it off of shelly's fat roly poly body just just gave up on it he could have been for this time period that's he that could have been the inspiration for the the lead singer in living color right (laughs) <laughs> oh my god although it, it would have been funny if uh, then we, we then cut to uh shelly talking about how he got knocked out by jason and woke up with his wetsuit around his ankles <laughs> <laughs> oh. spear, spear gun jammed between his butt. <laughs> 
Well, this actor, whose name I would tell you, but unfortunately, I believe that having Firefox open was causing us some technical issues. Wait, you know um, what? Hang on. I've, I've got it in oh, front Oh, good, of good. Uh, yeah, while you look that up, I will Larry, just... Larry Zerner. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Sounds right, doesn't Larry, it? Larry Zerner, yes. He has become... Oh, his the character's full name is Shelley Finkelstein, by the way. Oh, God. <laughs> He's not even trying. Yeah. They really aren't. Um, he's become somewhat of an ambassador for the series. And like when you look at a lot of the um, special features, it's that actor. And believe it or not, he looks better today than he did back then, uh, which almost no one can say. You know, they pull up in front of house and he's obviously being set up with this chick who's way too hot for him. And like yeah. he not, but I, you know, the worst part about it is he knows it. You know, it's like, with the, wouldn't you please break with a face like this, it's like, oh my god. Yeah, he has a defeatist attitude in life, oh, and, and that makes him an odious character. But by the way, the actor was cast by the screenwriters, that husband and wife couple that I was telling you about. Uh, they were walking around Westwood, and uh, Larry was a uh, like an OTX-type uh, worker. He was working for a test screening company where okay. he, he's handing out tickets to a screening of The Road Warrior. Wow. And yes, wow. and they saw him and they were like, you are Shelly. So they told the producers and he came in and auditioned and got the part. But I thought that was kind of a funny little anecdote. Hey, hey, you, we're looking for a really whiny, pathetic guy and you are absolutely perfect. <laughs> oh, boy. Is your last name Finkelstein by chance? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, the, the, the upside, the one and only upside of Shelley beyond giving uh, Jason his iconic tools is uh, this is one of the few movies in which we have kind of a nerdy character who is still best friends with like a cooler character. And this movie actually kind of sells us on, on that friendship. Because yeah. I, in, a, in a lot of films of, of this nature, you'll, you'll have like kind of a nerdy guy and he hangs out with the cool guy. And there's no explanation as to why they're still friends outside of its contravance of, of the screenplay. And in this one, like, you know, the cool guy, I forgot the character's name. Uh, you know, the dude, who, the one guy who like actually go, yeah, that, you know, that guy could get laid. I get it. Um, you, you see that they still have this kind of childlike shared interest in uh, circus tricks and juggling. You know? You know, and the one guy has just grown up more than Shelley has. You know, Shelley's still kind of a fifteen, thirteen to fifteen year old boy trapped in his body, whereas the other guy is like, you know, we can still like juggling and walking around on our hands, but you know, you gotta be cool about it, man. You know, and and in that way, it's it's actually kind of a human arc that that makes sense. Well, it's like the kid in the playground who punches the little girl to show that he likes her. Um, he scares Vera with the, the hockey mask, and he thinks that that is going to win her over in some very juvenile way, the way that, yeah. you know, he's just... Right. Um, I, I, that's, that's the only way that he can think of to communicate with people. So yeah. But I know. do think that if there's one relationship in the film that, you know, bears looking at whatsoever, it is him and Vera. Um, there's a little something there that I found interesting. I mean, the fact that he gets that win when they go to the um, the store where he looks kind of cool um, right. because he stands up to the bikers and, you know, he, he does okay in that situation. And I thought that was interesting. But when he and Vera are right before he dies, 
um, they have like this little, you could almost call it a tiff, you know, where yeah, it, she's basically trying to tell him, I'm not entirely rejecting you. Like, you know, you're there. There's maybe some potential there someday, you know, she's really trying not to like destroy him. She's being very sensitive to him. And right. I thought that that was kind of interesting. Like she actually seems like a pretty decent human being, unlike ninety percent of these characters. Yeah, I, I, she she doesn't just instantly flush him down the toilet. Like like he actually does to himself. She's actually yeah. like, all right, dude, listen, I'm not going to fuck you, but on the other hand, you know, I'm not gonna like just just tear you to shreds either, because like you, you know, you do you do a good enough job yourself. So it's like, you know, yeah, yeah, she cares like, enough to take an interest in, like, you know, maybe she's gonna help him grow up or get some game or stop doing this shit. Like, she's not just gonna reject him out of hand. And you know, like, there's a warmth there in their relationship. She runs out of patience and gets frustrated, and she's like, you know, yeah. I just can't even talk to you. And she goes outside to be by herself. And his immediate response is to pull yet another prank, which is like, oh, my God, dude, you are seven years old, man. What is your problem? It goes from beyond being juvenile. It's like there's something wrong with your head, dude. What is up? You know, well, and then they both die. So, you know, that's what I was going to say. That That's what what bothers me most about Shelley. I mean, the, re- the reason that I feel like, like I said, to me, that's the, the transition that happened. Excuse me. That happens in this movie is is you know, creating characters that we want to see Jason kill. Jason right. really becomes the central figure. He becomes the person that we're rooting for in this. And it's, you give Shelly this, this win, like you said, this moment when he runs over the bikers and you're like, you know, you sort of think like, geez, like maybe he, you know, he's going to turn it around with this chick. Like, you know, the, the this is a chance for him to uh, uh, overcome something. But yeah. he doesn't. He just goes right back to being the same sniveling <laughs> yeah, character. He squanders um, his points. I mean, that was one of the, the weakest moments in the script to me was Vera being like, when they have their little fight or whatever, and Vera's like, I'm going to go outside for 10 minutes <laughs> and I'll come back to I mean, you know, like that's everything, that's everything that Scream was made to make fun of is like, I'm just going to go, I'm just going to go sit in the basement for a little while. Right. Um, yeah. I, I just need to be by myself, by myself so I'm going to uh, go sit in the darkness for a little yeah. bit. <laughs> oh, one thing that we can't completely overlook is the shameless we need a crazy old man insertion of yeah. a new character in, right. in this film where like they just encounter uh, a lunatic on, on the side of the road who has an eyeball and is just, oh, it's terrible. It's shallow and it's shameless and it's really, really super on the nose. But I found that character way more uh, chop top than... Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's the 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 pantry crazy guy. Ralph. Yeah, I mean I, that guy seemed to be, you know, the the comic relief played for laughs character. And this one, there actually was like something kind of creepy about the fact that he's just wandering around with this severed eyeball in his hand. You know, I, it's like hanging in the middle of the road. I I, uh, I actually dug that dude in a weird mm. kind of way. Just the idea of having this like kooky dude lying in the middle of the road with like an eyeball in his hand who is like kind of like a semi-worshipper of the the power that lies in the woods nearby you know yeah i mean you could 
tie this back to the sort of mythology about the evil infecting this area and that, you know, it's, it's corrupted this guy's mind and, you know, consciously or unconsciously, he's sort of an, an acolyte of the curse of Crystal yeah. Lake, you know? The Ren, Ren, Renfield of Crystal Lake. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so the, the biker gang, the three-person yes. biker gang, uh, who are as cartoonish a trio as I've seen uh, uh, put to film. <laughs> <laughs> but I love them. They're, they're, they're actually one of my favorite parts of this whole movie, I will have to say. I, I, on the one hand, they seem like a clear... I mean, again, this is a movie that, again, in many ways, seems like it's the result of clear choices. Like, there was a clear choice to say, we need some non-Lily White characters in this thing. So let's give the one guy a Latina girl to hang out with, and, uh, hmm, where else? Let's have a biker gang, and they're no goodness. And, I mean, Ali is a really interesting guy. Uh, who's the girl in there? Fox. Fox. Fox, that's right. And uh, the other dude who looks like a... Loco. Loco, Loco. that's right. Uh, Loco is the dude who gets pitchforked. Yeah, that's right. And and, uh, the way that they act in the store reminded me of the gang in The Last Dragon, (laughs) if if you remember that. Mm -hmm. Hey, man, you're on the turf. You know, that level of villainy. It's a biker gang as conceived by people who have never met anyone in a biker gang. It's a biker gang as conceived by a wardrobe department. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, well, I've, I've, and again, there's this sense that they're just they're they're cannon fodder. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love that. Uh, yeah, I, I love that their their main uh, idea of getting revenge against Shelley for embarrassing them is to get some gas out of the van, which I will say is an effective way to uh, organically sell that the van isn't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. They steal the gas out of the tank, and then they're going to burn down the barn. Little do they know, but there is a uh, grown-up version of a frightened retard living in that barn. <laughs> yeah, With there, new shoes. There must not be a, a lot of good auto mechanics in this part of the country, because no. Um, no. we have more cars breaking down in, in these films than... 10 other movies because the, the, the VW does break down. Uh, yeah. The battery right. is bad on the VW yeah. on a beetle. So mm-hmm. even though we have the van, a, a plausible reason, but she has the, uh, the reserve tank, which I love. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so she, she switches to the reserve tank and I believe just what happens is Jason attacks. And so she, flees the the car and it's kind of stuck in the bridge it's it's kind of unclear why that isn't an avenue of escape um when she activates the uh reserve tank but let's uh let's let's talk about the the kills here uh for me by far there's only one standout in this movie back to the idea of going more mainstream or quote-unquote studio here um this one really seems edited uh, for the MPAA. Um, there's really, even though you've got like, you know, an eyeball popping out and whatnot, for the yeah. most part, it, it feels kind of tame in the kills. But the guy walking on his hands remains a classic. Yeah. Because I, 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 Jason basically like chops him in half from the crotch upwards and then shoves him like in a pile of meat into, what is that, like a shelf or a... Yeah, she, she, he puts him on a beam. So right. 
Yeah, yeah. He's he's his broken, mangled body is on this beam above the hammock. Uh, yeah. And then we we reprise the Kevin Bacon kill essentially from the first movie, where the girl gets the knife up through you know her back and pops out of her chest, very much like right. Kevin Bacon. Um, John, interestingly, you are absolutely correct about uh, the the edits. I was actually reading this. Uh, they they initially received an X rating, uh, and so Andy's death in particular uh, showed his right leg being cut off and his stomach being torn open. Uh, Vera's death was cut of bloodshed and her subsequent reaction. Um, this was cut for supposedly looking quote too good. <laughs> um, and there's a there's a couple other uh, there's a couple other instances of that. I mean, I actually the kills were one of the things that I sort of came away with liking the invent this again setting up the tropes sort of going forward. There was an inventiveness to them here. I mean, there's there's pokers, there's heads being you know we get the we get the sort of iconic machete. Um, you know, there's there's axes and and people being cut in half. Um, I mean, Jason, I think makes, uh, you know, the pitchfork, Jason makes use of all the implements available to him. I feel like for the first time, as opposed to, you know, just a lot of knife stabbings. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I agree. Know, the, the, the interesting thing is I, I had two thoughts. One, uh, we have not one or two, but three instances of eyeball trauma. Uh, first we have the old man who's just kind of walking around with an eye, then Vera gets shot in the eye and then he crushes the farm guy's head in such a way that his eyeball comes flying out of his head. And uh, the other one is that uh, we get the, the pitchfork through Loco, and Loco's first reaction is to reach behind him and check and make sure that, yes, the pitchfork has gone all the way through me. It's all the way through. That's right. Yeah. So that is it's kind of an interesting, kind of interesting well, I think in the second movie, there was an itch that needed to be scratched because he's running around with a pitchfork, but he doesn't actually kill anyone with it. Right. But in this yeah. movie, we get two members of the gang are dispatched with the pitchfork. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is in, in the first two movies, we see a lot of throat slashings. And in yes. this one, the one only character who gets his throat slashed is, ironically enough, Shelly. Mm-hmm. And he, he dies in quote-unquote reality in a way less interesting way than he kills himself with uh, theatrics. It was somewhat funny that he he gets his throat slit and uh, survives for quite a while before actually succumbing to that particular wound. Yeah, he stumbled around for a while with that thing. But uh, yeah, he he actually died in a way more boring death than uh, than he was giving himself, which I I found to be fitting in a way. (laughs) He doesn't even get a cool death, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I agree, Vic. Um, it's more that the gore effects were generally lacking. I do agree with you, and it's a good observation that here's where we're not settling just for, and he sluts, slits his throat, you know? Like, yeah. we have to get a little more clever here, which becomes thought, a real hallmark of the series. Right. I thought Ali's hand getting cut off at the end was actually reasonably well done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well... But- I think that the movie really takes off for me at the point where there's no more dialogue, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is about the point where the boyfriend gets grabbed and, you know, that happens to him, which, as you said, Mike, is a great upping of the ante of the power of Jason. You know, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. you realize, I mean, he's gone from being 
average in strength apparently to superhuman now which is which is terrifying that's part of the the idea that this is you know a terminator like creature uh right. on some level uh, yeah. So, yeah, from there, I think the movie, you know, it's all just those little suspense mini set pieces as the girl is running around and trying to escape and, you know, getting in these little skirmishes with Jason. And I found all of that uh, pretty solid and pretty entertaining. And it is kind of funny, back to Ali, that Jason apparently knocks him out with a pipe wrench in the barn. He pops up and gives her the... Uh, fateful distraction by mm-hmm. getting his arm cut off and and you know him cut to ribbons that she picks up the machete and deals Jason what will be the blow in this film that defeats him with the right. shot to the head that cuts the groove in the hockey mask that we, we, we will see for many subsequent films that yeah. damage will be there. You know, ironically enough, it's the non-bloody violence that that I find to have the most impact in this movie. And uh, the first instance is when Jason clubs Ali. Uh, you know, the the soundtrack cuts out, and we just watch this dude getting beat, yeah. and just the the blows landing is is gruesome. And uh, when Jason is hung, uh, and he flails around for a really long time i I actually found that to be like kind of a a a gruesome scenario you know Mm -hmm. uh it's great like everything yeah i I, and everything else i'm like oh that's a cool effect i you know like like when vera gets shot in the face and it's like clearly like a mask terrible um yeah yeah it's 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 awful and um but you know it's it's when they're they're not using effects and it's just the characters reacting to being you know attacked uh it's it's better stuff yeah, they're really missing Tom Savini on this one, um, yeah. or even the guy that did the makeup in the last movie. Uh, I thought the effects were pretty poor. Interestingly, Stan Winston designed the Jason makeup in this film, and it may have been an alternate makeup that they didn't go with. I mean, they shot some stuff, uh, and we'll get into that at the very end, but yeah. um, it... Uh, it, it Stan Winston was involved in this film uh, to a degree, but hmm. uh, Vic, do you have any thoughts about the ending, how it played for you, the climax, and again the the way that we leave this film? Well, I, one of the well, first off, John, I, I'm I, I don't want to be this guy, but I have to be this guy. She hits him with an axe, not a machete. He's he's <laughs> holding the machete. Okay. Uh, sorry. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Um, but uh, we, we talk, it's, we, we've talked a lot in the in the previous films about oh the 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 strength and and kind of intelligence the inventiveness of the the female you know the the, the quintessential female survivor you know and this is not just an, a sort of anti-feminist naked chicks getting cut up because we right. have these characters and I thought over that closing sequence which I agree with you John is is really sort of the the better part of the movie. Um, she does some really in, interesting things. I mean, I thought she did as, as generally poorly developed as the character is. She proves her metal a little bit. Um, I mean, there's the scene where she has to pull the knife out of the girl's back, um, you know, and then she really goes after Jason with that knife. 
I liked when Jason is attacking her in the van and she rolls the window up to trap his hands in the van and that lets her sort of get away a little bit. I thought that was very yes. uh, creative. And the decision to hang him, not only is that a cool image and making use of, uh, again, this barn as a character, watching her put this rope around his neck and kind of push him off. Um, she's dangerously close to him for a long time. And that, you know, knowing as we do that Jason can't possibly be dead, um, that generates a lot of suspense and, and, and shows a certain amount of courage on her, on her, her character's part, I think. Um, I love I, that moment when she has to open the doors that he has uh, essentially locked by jamming mm-hmm. that, that heavy piece of wood and then you know she has to work to get that open and there he is hanging right there on the other side of it yeah there's just something really cool about that yeah that that that, that's actually one of my favorite moments in the entire movie that part is the is this the uh, that sequence is i think the the stronger part of the movie i I would say kind of again the the ending is a sequence that's far more about the audience than it is about the characters mm-hmm. because you know the you know the filmmakers know that the audience knows that there's going to be a jump scare at the very end mm-hmm. and the, and that entire sequence in which uh, the camera moves over her while she's uh, unconscious in the boat she wakes up and oh it's just a log and then uh, she pushes the log away in a tense moment but the log proves to be uh, innocuous. But then we get a second scare with a, a duck scare. And I will have to say that uh, you don't see a whole lot of duck scares. Cat scares, yes. <laughs> did, you, I, did, you, I, did you sense I, I, the, the guy off camera hurling the duck at her? No, but I, I, I was wondering how they did the duck. Uh, I mean, did they put some duck feed in the water? Because I, 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 I'm like in part two, it felt like there was definitely a grip, like just off frame throwing a cat at this girl. Yeah. And yeah. in this one, I felt like the duck was landing in a natural way. It almost felt like a happy accident. But uh, um, And then uh, we get the third scare in which Jason appears maskless in all of his gruesome glory in the window of, of that house. And what I really liked about that was, uh, you know, it feels like she's got enough time to get away, but then she's trapped by the same floating logs that just a beat or two ago were harmless. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, here comes Jason. And he's got this weird smile on his face. He's like, I oh, love the like, look on his face. Yeah, it, it's basically like he's turned into like an evil version of Sloth from the Goonies. Yes, and he's <laughs> he's 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 coming he's coming to get her, and she's in the middle of the lake, and there's some time and some distance, but then she's trapped, and oh no! And then finally, we get the pop up with mom, and she doesn't know it. And and see, here's kind of the point that I'm trying to make is she doesn't, as a character, doesn't know anything about mom, but the audience knows about mom. Mm-hmm. So that beat is purely for the audience, if that makes sense. Like, like why would she hallucinate uh, Jason's undead mother? You see what I mean? Well, again, yeah. who, she, who she does not know anything about or know that she even exists. Exactly. And even if she did, would know that uh, the mother is a headless creature. Well, you know, it could, Mike, I, you, you touched on the idea of her having these precognitive dreams of Jason. Right. Um, it, you know, it, it, I suppose if you were looking for an explanation beyond just trying to scare the audience, that would be it. 
Yeah. 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 It's the same thing you were saying before. I mean, it's the idea that the evil of the lake and this family, the Voorhees family, is right. such that, like, now they're just like Freddy in a sense, you know? Right. In the dream, she can have her head back, you know? Pamela right. could could be, you know, riding a chariot drawn by undead horses. I mean, because... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's, it's not about the character and the character's knowledge. It's about the evil of the lake and, and the particular ghosts and uh, creatures and dreams that, that haunt it. So, yeah. I, I mean, that's, I, you could argue that that's the one thing that's consistent in this film with the first two films yeah. is that we are keeping this sort of subtextual haunting of the place and a, a more powerful evil than even just Jason. That's the right. one thing that the three of us have been so fascinated with so far. I'm I'm inclined to the more cynical reading. Oh I think yeah, they just especially again given the stuff that we've talked about uh, in terms of this film and its production and the thought that went into it, they were yeah. like, "We need something scary to happen." Um, yeah, and 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 on that level, I think it's the weakest ending of the three by, yeah. thus far. Although yeah. I did like that shot of Jason in the window. Yeah, I really liked for the simple fact that it wasn't a jump scare. Like there was it, it again. It's it goes back to that idea of an image, you know, that's that's just frightening without having someone hurl a duck at you. Um, yes. You know that that him kind of pressing on the window, the the make you know the makeup, not spectacular, but but still like you know, it it worked for me for the simple fact that there was no stinger and it was, and they held the shot for a while and you sort of saw it and, and could really feel her terror welling up for a minute. Yeah. He's yeah. got that lunatic grin on his face. And yeah. in a way it's kind of like that amazing shot in the second movie where you can see him closing through the little narrow strip of window uh, right. as he's approaching the cabin and it mm -hmm. takes a while right. almost in real time for him to get to her. And that's kind of what they're doing here. Yeah. Right. I, I, I mean, that's great stuff. And there's almost something slightly Lovecraftian about it. You know, just the idea that she is in the middle of nowhere and she's on this canoe and she runs across the one house that, it, you know, that is the lair of this goon. And he sees her through the window and it's going to take her. It's going to take him a couple of minutes to get outside, but he's coming for her. You know, yeah. uh, I, I would say that this is you know one of the closer beats to Texas chainsaw that yeah. i would say you know. yeah yeah well there was an alternate ending shot and there are some uh stills of this available i don't think the footage can be seen anywhere okay but it's paul that she not paul her boyfriend whatever farm boy uh, uh -huh. that she sees in the window and he With is running down i'm sorry with his eye popped out? Like, is, mm. he, is he dead or is he alive? No, he is normal. Okay. And he is running through the house as she is running alongside the house. And you're seeing him running past the windows as she's running on the outside. And then when uh -huh. she gets to the door and opens the door, it's Jason, not her boyfriend. And huh. he decapitates her. And that, then she wakes up. And that's the dream that she had. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Huh. I can see why they changed it, but it's still it, it kind of cool. It's a cool idea, but I, I, you know, with this one, it feels like this is a lot of fan service. Uh, 
Yeah. You know, for instance, you know, just, just to kind of circle back around a little bit, there is that beat in which a character is reading an issue of Fango, and I can't even tell you how much I hate shit like that. I, I, I just saying you know, where she's flipping around, and it's like there, there might even be a, an article about like Tom Savini and yes, there, and she's there like, is. huh? And then, uh, th- and then uh, uh, my other kind of pet peeve is when characters in movies uh, say really obvious shit, and in this case, uh, like a little dash of blood falls on her, and she looks at it and goes, huh? Where did that come from? <laughs> you know, yeah. so like, oh, there's atrocious the dialogue in oh, this movie. Oh, yeah. yeah I, I, I want to just say, I got to say, I got to give you a little nugget about the scripts real quick here. Yeah, um, uh, they brought in a script doctor because even the studio and the filmmakers were unhappy with that couple and their script. And they brought in uh, this guy to do a, a rewrite. And if you look at his subsequent credits, they're terrible. Like it, it, Silent Night, Deadly Night 5, and, you know, Puppet Master 31 or whatever. You know, wow. he's had an extremely undistinguished career. So I think this script, and particularly the dialogue, is abysmal for the most yeah. part. Yeah, yeah. It's a huge step down. And there's, like, lots of really terrible, like, juvenile-level uh, dialogue. I mean, as, as if they, they're writing like a really shitty copy issue of Tales of the Crypt is, is kind of the mentality. Well, these movies are clearly rushed. I mean, this is only 82, and the first movie was 80. Like, they've, they've made right. three movies in the span of about three years. <laughs> right. It's crazy. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, you know, that, that one scene uh, annoyed me to no end. It's the first of Fango, then the shitty right. dialogue. I'm like, ah, damn it! This was the first one to be released on Friday the 13th, though, I want to point oh. out. It was released on, in August uh, on Friday the 13th. Um, so the last topic I want to broach is the mask itself. And I'll kick it off just by, you know, giving the little backstory about it. Um, the bag on the head uh, was problematic at the time in the second movie because of the Elephant Man, believe it or not. Uh, the movie mm-hmm. starring uh, Anthony Hopkins and John Hurt. Uh, the character um, of John Merrick was playing, uh, was wearing a bag on his head, and apparently audiences, I don't know how this happens, but they saw both of those movies. doesn't seem like the same demographic. So right. there was sort of a comical aspect of, to it at the time. So they were determined to ditch the bag, but they even went into production without knowing what kind of a mask he was going to wear. Interesting. So one of the crew members just happened to have, they, they all played hockey, a lot of the crew. They were from based in Buffalo, New York. And okay. they were hockey players, and one of them had a goalie mask. And he just tried it on, and he was like, what do you think of this, to Steve Miner? And they loved it. So then they made all of these you know, show masks. Uh, it, it's not real hockey masks that are used in the film, but the decision to go that way was very much on the fly, and they had no idea that it would become iconic. Wow. So I, I, this, this extremely iconic thing is, is basically at core a happy accident. Exactly. Huh. Exactly. Wild. Which is funny because Jason all along is sort of like a secondary, a bit character that was just used for the sting at the end of the first movie. And he is promoted to the star. And then they happen to throw this mask on him. And, and now like that implacable read whatever you want into his emotionless visage is, is part of the 
the power of this character that truly endures. Well, you know, uh, Vic, you brought up something interesting in a conversation about two was the fact that he, even though he's a weirdo who lives in the middle of the woods, he still feels the need to hide his face. Uh, yes. by pulling this bag over his head. And uh, e- even in this movie, it's more of a, again, they're thinking more about the audience than they are about the characters. But it's still, uh, this is a character who's so ugly that he walks around with a um, with a mask on that is actually more iconic than his actual face itself. A la the Phantom of the Opera. There, there are some old-timey uh, elements to this. Like when he's coming after... Uh, I watched uh, I watched this movie with Bill, another big Friday the 13th uh, fan and friend of ours last night, and he pointed out that when Jason is coming after Chris at the very end with the axe and not a machete lodged in his head, um, uh-huh. he has his hands <laughs> reaching for her, <laughs> and uh, he said it reminded him of like Bella Lugosi or something, and I could right. t- definitely see that. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Final thoughts? Uh, man, it's got its upsides, but for the most part, I'm kind of looking to get to part four. <laughs> right, right. Vic? Um, I, I was, again, I'm just struck by the fact that this is the movie, and, and this does come, I'm sure, from the, the cynicism, I guess, of the, the studio perspective. Um, this is the movie where Jason becomes the star. Uh, the characters, uh, I mean, I, I actually thought and, and jotted down a little bit about this, that you know, there's almost a wish fulfillment in the fact that, you know, somebody, there's somebody in this group of people or some pair of people that you just hate. You know, the stoner couple that's just always wants to get high and they, you know, or the, the couple that just wants to screw all the time and they can't wait to get away from you. You know, the nerdy kid, whatever, the hot girl that doesn't, you know, that doesn't want to make out with you. Um you know, that's, they fit into these very easy archetypes um, so that the audience can have a rooting interest in Jason killing them. Um, and we're not really rooting for anyone to survive. Um, yeah, and, and, and that comes from being in the theater for the first two movies and watching teenagers cheer at these murders, much to the dismay and chagrin of people like Roger Ebert. Like, that right. is how you get to this film. I've talked about that since we started this podcast, the idea that now they're reacting to the reaction that people mm-hmm. had to right. the first two movies. And speaking of reaction, I, I should not omit this detail. The film knocked off E.T., the extraterrestrial, to take number one at the box office in its opening weekend. And it was very, very successful at the box office. Wow. Uh, by a complete uh, happy accident, I just watched the documentary last night about the uh, unearthing of the uh, the buried E.T. Mm-hmm. Atari cartridges. <laughs> that is an amazing coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, um, Friday 13th Part 3, uh, God, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting movie. It's a curiosity. It's definitely important historically to horror as a whole. Into the franchise in particular, but man, I can't wait to get to part four because that's my second favorite of, of, of this series. Agreed. All right. Well, I will see you all back here for that real soon. Take all care, right, guys. guys. Thanks a lot. Yeah, Bye, guys. Take it easy.